like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, in this episode, we'll be continuing our look at my favorite Philip K. Dick novel, and the one I think is his best, Galactic Popular. In the previous episode, we looked at chapters 1 through 4, and this one we'll look at, at 5 through 8, getting us to the halfway point in, in the story. Um, so the, the first part of the novel is really setting up this very, very miserable world that our hero, Joe Fernwright, lives in. It's, it's, it's almost a world that takes like the worst aspects of, of kind of capitalism with some of the worst aspects of communism. Or if you were to, to take just the elements of those systems, you know, as, as they existed in practice, not really in theory, you know, you take the, be- the worst ele- the, the, the elements of those that would make life most miserable, right? So for instance, the dole, which is normally something that could give people free time, uh, social safety net security is presented here as just uh, uh, shackles that that lock people into into lives without meaning, or automation or innovation. These kinds of things are presented here as as also causing misery. Uh, now, Joe Fernwright's main problem, of course, is that he's a pot healer, right? He he uses technology, of course, but he's largely a craftsperson who repairs um, pots. This was an important job for him after the war. When there's a lot of pots to be fixed, he inherited this position from his father, almost like a, a medieval-style artisan would. However, there's really no need for it anymore. People just replace their pots or throw them out. There's really not the need for a pot healer in this day and age. So, so his life is essentially one of boredom and and drudgery and and you know misery. The only thing he really gets any meaning out of on Earth is is the game, which is kind of a, a word game, a game played with translations. It's it's actually interesting here how how Philip Dick sort of imagines a type of internet almost, right? We have people sitting in cubicles without jobs, and I think that's kind of an interesting aspect of, of this novel is that he's on the dole. He doesn't have any work to do, but he still has to go into his office every day, and his office is this huge, you know, all these cubicles, thousands of them, and a lot of these people just have nothing to do. And so they spend their time playing the game, essentially online. They they use phones to do it, but you know they're they're essentially on on the equivalent of Facebook chatting with each other. The way the game works is that you actually translate a title of literature into like Japanese, and then translate it back into English. You know, you can play this game with Google Translate actually, and and see how it it, it changes, and then you give it to someone as a riddle to to figure out, you know, what the original word was. It's kind of a game of puns, and later on we're going to see that game played really with people who, do, who, who learn English, right? Who are, I guess, ESL um, speakers. Uh, one of the major characters we meet later on in this part of the story, we'll meet, meet her, you know, doesn't speak English very well. So there's actually the same kind of game of puns. And, and Joe will, will use this ability, you know, in the, in the story in various ways just to converse with this, this character. Um, but yeah, we just got a miserable world that Joe's living in. The heart of it, though, is he really has no meaning in his life, right? 
he's hoping he can maybe get a new job. So he's, he's planning to save up, take the quarters he saved up because there's hyperinflation. So the, the only thing that has any real value is, is metal money. Uh, coins. He's hoping to save this up, take him to a Mr. Job machine and find a better job, a job that may give him some meaning. But before he can do this, he gets contacted by a creature that he later learns is Glimung, which is the dominant species on a planet Cirrus 5 or Plowman's planet, and he offers him a job to help him raise Held Scala, right? And Joe figures out that this is actually, he's going to be one of many people that this Glimmung creature is recruiting to, to engage in this um, engage in this huge project um now he gets arrested by the police at one point uh, kind of unluckily and this he's saved from this by the glimmon and that's where he first meets him and the glimmon asks him some really profound questions such as like why don't you find meaning in your life just by just going to museums and breaking pots then they'll be forced to, to to heal them and that's not really that's presented as not really a good solution to the problem it doesn't really get to the heart of the matter which is he he needs to have a job that gives him that that core meaning and just creating bullshit work isn't going to do it for him right and you think a lot when you read this book about david graber's essay and later book on the phenomenon of bullshit jobs because you know that's what we have here we have people who don't need to work but they still come into work right and we have people who really can't find meaning outside of work outside of their craft right this is a lot of the danger of automation we've seen in other philip dick stories how automation has led to you know, machines that can't be controlled or, you know, lack of, 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 of human really management of, of machinery. But this is another aspect of the fear of automation. And that I think that's the fear a lot of us feel now when we hear reports about the robot factory coming. It's that if we don't have a job, even though that job is bad or not very pleasurable or, you know, what will we do with our lives, right? And a lot of us don't really know that, answer that question. And Joe is someone who, who has trouble finding meaning outside of outside of work. But his society doesn't really give him many options. He's divorced. He lives alone. You know, it's it's kind of a miserable place all around, right? So where we left off, Joe's on his way to the airport, starport, spaceport. He still doesn't fully know if he's going to commit to Glimmin yet, so he still has some questions. And so that's where chapter five opens. It, it opens with some really, some philosophical statements that, that help Joe kind of think through what he's going to do. What, uh, it starts like this, quote, a man is an angel that's become deranged. Once they, all of them, have been genuine angels. And at that time, they had a choice between good and evil. So it was easy, easy being an angel. And then something happened. Something went wrong or broke down or failed. And then they'd be been faced with the necessity of choosing not good or evil, but the lesser of two evils. And so that unhinged them. And now each was a man. Now, this is very similar. This is what I think of the society that Joe Fernwright lives in. It's obviously an, an artificial one. It's a bit over the top. But it's, it's again, it's like if they took the worst aspects the, of, of all possible systems and, and kind of crammed them together you'd get this, right? Uh, none of the good is there. It's basically we're just stuck with, with kind of a, a general overall misery. I mean, there's good things, I suppose. There's a social safety net in the dole. There's it seems to be full employment. Everyone has jobs. But it's just inverted and it's presented in such a, a miserable way that we really can't see it, these as good things. And, you know, it's kind of like the fallen angel motif we're presented with here. And later on, he thinks this. He, he really has to make a choice between kind of just existing or doing something with life. And this is the way it's framed. 
The strength of being, he thought, and opposite to that piece of non-being. Which was better? Strength wore out then, every time. So perhaps that was the answer and more was needed. Strength, being, was temporary, and peace, non-being, was eternal. It had existed prior to his birth and would resume for him after his death. The period of strength in between was merely an episode, a short flexing of borrowed muscles, a body which had to be returned to the real owner. Had, not, had he not met the glimmer, he would not have realized this. So what he's decided here is that life is not just something to, to, to dwell on, to, to experience until you die. It's really something you have to have meaning to because that's the only time we have that being and that capacity for strength. We, we may be weak. We may not accomplish that much, but it's the striving that, that makes it possible. And that's why this idea of raising Hildskala, of having a mission, is something that's so intriguing for, for our hero. So he goes to a, a, a phone booth. It's actually a Padre machine. And what this is, is it, it allows religions to be essentially a consumer, consumable good. So you dial it to whatever religion you want and you, you say, give it a question and it gives you advice, right? So he randomly takes it to, to Zen. And here's a question he asks. He asked, I haven't worked for seven months and now I've got a job which takes me out of the soul system entirely and I'm afraid. What if I can't do it? What if after so long I've lost my skill? And then he gets the different advice from the Padre, all from these different religious points of view. It's kind of funny. It's a, it's a humorous scene. But there's, uh, you know, the transition of religion to just, uh, just a consumer good that you draw to for advice as you wish, right? Not a full set of beliefs that one embraces. It's just, you know, almost therapy is, is something I think is something we need to consider when we look at Dick's view of religion and especially new religious movements. Um, after giving up on the Padre, he sees that Glimmon in a human form is sitting next to him. The last time he talked to Glimmon, he actually talked to him as, as kind of a, you know, through a radio voice. And he's trying to convince him to go to Plowman's planet uh, still. He says, I never intended for you to be so troubled. Your work is good. I've told you that. I picked you up because I consider you the finest pot healer on earth. I've told you that too. The Padre was right. You need something to eat and a chance to calm down. I'll order it for you. And that's, that's the, the, again, the reinsurance that the Glimmon gives him that he has a purpose in this, in this world. And, he's gonna, and the Glimmon's going to give it to him by, helping, by asking him to raise Held Scala. Right? And he wouldn't just pick anyone to do it. He picks someone who has ability. The Glimmon then tells a story about a spider who, who makes his web, who has a very small life, um, you know, but in the big scheme of things, the spider's life is like Joe Fernwright's life. They're all temporary. They're all finite. They're all small. But, but it has some kind of meaning, right? And that meaning comes in what he creates and what he can, can make. But there's kind of something bleak about the spider too in that he can really just wait until something comes to him. He really can't be proactive. And he also gives a comparison here to like to the fisherman who maybe is just fishing every day and waiting for the, for the fish to come. Uh, Glimmon asserts him that they're going to do something great with the raising of Heldskala. So he decides to go and he, and he meets the other people on the flight. There are several people on this particular flight who are um, go, also going on the Glimmon expedition. Not all of them, but I think there's like you know, a dozen or so from Earth who are who've been recruited by Glimmon are going to Plowman's planet. One of these is a major a major character in the novel, and that's Molly Yojez, who's actually a non-Terran. Was it? She's blue. Yeah, she's got a blue skin. 
and Fernwright is instantly interested and attracted in her. Now, when he, he ends up sitting next to, to Molly Yojez and they're able to share each other's biographical material, something that the Glimmen had collected on everyone. So she sort of knows uh, Fernwright's job and his purpose on this, this mission. Uh, they, they just chit-chat about what they're up to and what, what the plan is going to be. Yojez seems to be a little bit more in the know. Uh, now, one thing that's interesting about this character is she does not speak Terran, I guess essentially English, well, she, she had to learn it, and she hadn't spoken it for a while, so she's kind of relearning it through talking with Joe. And here's where the game uh, helps him. I mean, we actually get this comparison directly where Miss um, Yoja says that he manifested himself as a laundry of basket. And Joe has to kind of wonder what that is. And he, you know, he can't quite figure it out at first. Later on, he says, maybe we'll use the translator. And she resists using the translator because she wants to practice her turn. Joe's trying to impress her with uh, talking about the game, actually. And, and this is something that's going to annoy Molly throughout the novel, is Joe's insistence on kind of reverting back to the game as a, as a point of reference. But he, he, he talks about one translation mishap where an engineering article was translated from the Russian to English, and the a word water sheep emerged. And, and it, they found out later on that water sheep means hydraulic ram, right? That... But that's just something that really interests him. And he's thinking about it because he's speaking to someone who is going to make these kind of literal translations as she's getting used to speaking Terran. Okay, so while they're sitting there, they, they find out it's actually 30 people from the, on that ship of 45 are on Glimmon's payroll. So they actually talk about maybe forming a union and they start to negotiate the formation of a union among the different uh, Terrans, and there's some aliens there too, who are you know, planning to, to go to Plowman's um, planet. They're able to share experiences about Glimmon too, how he manifested to other people, how he sold them on the, on the travel. And one thing that a lot of them have in common is that they, they were kind of rutted. They did have you know, a bit of meaninglessness in their life. They felt trapped in their existences. So Glimmon was able to maybe exploit that or to offer them an, an escape from the bleakness of their existence. It also seems that several of the people had had trouble with the law or trouble with the, the QCA police. They're, they're like the secret police on, the, on, on Earth. At the same time that they were being contacted by, by Glimmon, so they, they start to have some suspicions whether Glimmon's working with the police or he has some kind of deal with, with the police. That there seems to be something suspicious going on with you know, the government. This isn't a thread that's really carried through, but it just, what we see here is the group of Glimmon's employees learning that, that they're all kind of in a similar situation. They really can't stay on Earth. They really don't have much meaning there, so they're seeking something else in their life. And Joe kind of articulates this for, for the group, speaking through the microphone during their general, this general conversation they're having on the ship. Joe says, listen, Glimmon told me something at the spaceport. He told me about life waiting for something to come along and sustain it, and that thing, that event, never coming for many lives. He said that this undertaking, this raising of health scholar, was that thing, that event for me. Everything has been latent, Glimmon said, that has the potential. All of it will be actualized. I felt he knew about my life. He knew it from the inside 
and if he knew it from the inside with me looking, as if he knew it from the inside with me looking out. Some explain it that he's just a telepath, but other people confirm this experience that, that somehow Glimmon knew what they needed and they all needed this project. Now this ultimately is the solution to despair and alienation, two of the three stigmatas, is, is kind of a, a purpose in life. And I think that's why this book is so important, is it, is it reminds us of the importance of, of, of establishing that purpose and striving for it. And even if our life is banal, even if life is meaningless, even if it's temporary, right? Even if we're faded, actually, even if, if our future is mostly out of our control, right? We need to seize what control we have and, and plan something, right? Collectively, if, if, if we need to. But it, it can be done individually as, as well, as we'll see in this, this novel. Um, Joe even says this, I think we're experiencing panic. I think Glimmon planned this undertaking to save us. I think he saw all, all of us all, the futilities of our various lives and where they were leading, and he loved us because we were alive. And he did what he could to help us. The raising of Held Scala is only a pretext. All of us, and there may be thousands, are the real purpose in this. Oh, actually, that's, that's Molly, Miss Yojez, saying that. And since she explains that she tried to kill herself a few days prior to this. Now, Joe is, is, is quite attracted to Molly, and this, this conversation only increases that. Um, one aspect of the attraction is she doesn't remind him at all like Kate. She's an entirely different woman from, from Kate. So he doesn't fall into the trap of, of becoming attracted to a woman who's very much like his, his ex-wife, who's that wife who makes him quite miserable. It's hard to read a dick novel without having some kind of marital crisis. In this case, the marriage is dead, but it's still a burden for poor Joe Fernwright, and in Molly provides an escape for him there as well. So that's another way that this Plowman's Planet mission is going to be a great thing for, for our hero. But the, at the end of the conversation, though, Joe says something that offends uh, Molly Yojas, who had been on Plowman's Planet for a while earlier with, with a, a boyfriend. And Joe says something like, basically, that it's a backwater and we're going to be slaves, possibly. That's a threat. Maybe Glimmon is really going to take us as slaves. And, and Molly replies that, no, you know, this is a civilized planet. It, it has cities. It has law and order. So it's, it's not like a backward frontier place. And she, it, it kind of offends her. And that's the end of chapter five. So a lot going on in this chapter really revolving around this, this question of the meaning of life, right? And the meaning of life for the spider versus for the human, the importance of, of this quest, and the fact that they all do have sort of a collective experience of, of ennui. And Glimmon seems to be targeting that ennui to convince them to go on this, on this mission. So in chapter six, Joe goes back to apologize to, to Molly Yojez. He, he gives her more puns. Actually, this was the newspaper article, Elmo Plaskett Sinks Giants, which is a, a headline about a baseball game, but taken out of context, it's kind of funny. Um, that's part of the game. That's one aspect of the game is people find funny newspaper headlines and share them with each other. The stewardess actually comes into the back. It's like a little bedroom that they have on the, on the spaceship. And, and says, are you going to have sex with, with her? And, you know, I guess they can set that up for you. <laughs> but before they accelerate their relationship too much, uh, they 
they engage in an SSA machine, which is a subspecies Aternitis, which is essentially kind of a, it's not really a precog machine. It can't really read the future, but it takes two people's personalities and, you know, DNA and everything else and then figures out what kind of future they'll have. Will they be compatible and kind of predicts a future for them based on their characteristics. You can set it for one year in the future, 10 years, 20 years into the future. So it's kind of a big data thing more than it is a, an actual precog machine. Of course, we know from other Philip K. Dick novels that the line between precognition and big data is not not that far, right? Even all the way back to Vulcan's, Vulcan's hammer. So while the machine is working and trying to get the results, they chit-chat a little bit and they talk about work and he talks about what is involved in healing pots and how he can make pot, not, not just fix a pot, but actually make it look like it's, it's new. He actually, he actually heals it, right? He's not just a pot fixer, he's, he's a pot healer. Uh, and they get the, they get the result, uh, and this is what the SSA machine shows. Uh, he saw in 3D and in color himself and Molly holding hands and walking slowly along a twilight beach of some deserted other world. The fish eye lens system zoomed in and he saw his own face and hers. Both their faces ex expressed the most tender love possible. He knew at once, seeing his expression a year from now, that he had never had such a look on his face. Life had never held anything like this before for him. Perhaps, he thought, it had never held this for her either. End quote. Um, this is an important theme in the book, and that is fate. Like, is the future written or can, is it not, right? This is something we see in some of the precog novels too, this question of like, is there a single future or do precogs choose from many different possible futures? The way it's sort of described in Ubik is there are possible futures and, and they pick one, right? And so just because a precog sees it, they only see the most likely future, right? But the idea that there are alternatives out there is just not very likely that they'll emerge. The SSA machine does the same kind of thing. It bases on the data what the most likely future is. But this is not, we shouldn't be mistaken with inevitability, right? And this is going to be a theme that runs throughout the whole novel, right? That the real danger to us doing something is this, this despair over fate and this despair over the meaninglessness of our lives. And that's something that has to be confronted head on with with choice and and like human freedom and some kind of hope that that the odds aren't always against us i guess so they leave the lounge more or less made up they don't become lovers quite yet um and the rest of the the plot the people heading for plumman's planet are debating whether they should form a union and they end up haggling over that for, for a couple hours. It's kind of moot though, because there's there's you know hundreds and hundreds of other creatures, people, aliens, who are gonna to come to Plowman's planet as part of Glimmon's project. So just unionizing these 30 won't unionize the whole project yet. This is another plot line that's dropped and not picked up again. But, um, what, but I think what's happening here is at this point in the story, our characters are still seeing this kind of like a job. They don't see it as a, as a life quest quite yet. And that's something Glimmon is going to explain to them later on, that there, there's more involved in this than just, just a new job, right? It's actually a life-changing um, event. It, it's something that's going to give their life meaning. So chapter seven, they get to Plowman's planet. Uh, they find out that they're staying at the Olympia Hotel, it, which is in the largest city on the planet, which the largest city is called Diamond Head. 
And it's about 50 miles away from Mare Nostrum, which is the large ocean. It's called obviously our ocean or our sea. Mare Nostrum, of course, was used, I think, from the Roman Empire, right? When they defeated the Carthaginians, it was the Mare Nostrum then became the name for the Mediterranean. Uh, so they're going to be close to where they're working. They're going to raise the they're raising held scholar from the ocean, right? So they have to be near it. So that's where they're going to stay. So they all start to get off the ship and their baggage and people help them and they're going to go to this this hotel to to begin their new life. As they go to the hotel, Joe says something like this this world is unearthly. And Molly says, "Don't say that. That's it it reminds me of a little game that she played with Ralph, like her, her ex. And she gives other examples of this. And it, we're back to the pun stuff. So again, the importance of language in this book, it's, it's not the main theme of it, but it runs throughout the whole story is the, the, the difficulty of communicating, the problem of translation. Um, and puns are played with here. So here are some others that she kind of groans about, like other examples of this. This book business is hidebound. Plants are taken over the world sporadically. The operator left me off the hook. In 1945, the discovery of atomic energy electrified the world. Right, so. Now, I don't know if this kind of pun or word wordplay has an actual name in English. And it's not really listed here, but, um, but that's that. And then after this little conversation, Molly tells Joe to buy one of the books that's being sold. And then it's explained to her, explained to him by Molly that on Plowman's Planet, there's only one book. And this is the book of the, 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 the Callens. And this, and Joe doesn't understand why there's only one book. And the reason why there's only one book is because it, it in real time kind of grows and, you know, explains everything of importance on Plowman's Planet kind of in real time. Right, so it's kind of a living book. Even it can tell the future in a way. Sometimes it can predict the future. It can tie all these things together and, and, and state a future based that basically is our fate, right? It's our inevitable future. Or at least that's how it's presented. Um, this is how Molly explains it. It is written by a group of creatures or entities. I don't know the English. That records everything that passes on Plowman's planet. Everything great and small. Joe says, this is a newspaper then. And she says, it's recorded first. The Callens spin the story. They enter it in the ever-changing book without a title. And it comes out, and it comes to about, f finally. And Joe asks, is this precognition? And Molly says, that raises the question. What is cause? What is effect? The Callens wove in their alternating, al evolving script that the fog things, would pass, the fog things would pass away. They did pass away. Did then the Callens make them pass away? But the spittles are very superstitious. They naturally believe that. So he gets the book and he looks at it and he actually finds references to Mali Yojas in, in the book. So that, that kind of freaks him out, but it proves to him that it does seem to, you know, produce things in, in real time. It's a constantly changing book. Right? So then they pretty much just go to to the hotel and um, there's there's hints here that this world is is very different from the one that Joe's used to. For instance, the elevator at the hotel uses uses an operator, an attendant. It doesn't. It's not automatic, right? So it's not 
this plan is not going down the path of Earth of automating everything, leading to empty cubicles where people just play the game, right? There's still work on this planet. There's still meaning in labor. Now they go in the room and she, she gets ready to take a bath, you know, after the trip, of course. And he looks at her body and, and, and her, physical, her physical features. And they, they talk a little bit about their relationship here. Um, we, get, we get her description. This is the best description we have of her, actually, in, in the book. She entered the room wearing only her tight pants, bare from the waist up, he saw. Small-breasted but dense and tall with fine muscle tone. The body of a dancer, he said to himself, or a Cro-Magnum female, a hunter, an astute, supple person accustomed to long, lean, even fruitless marches. There was not a gram of useless flesh on her, as he had already discovered in the locked lounge of the ship. He had clutched it then. Now he saw it. However, he thought morbidly, Kate had, and actually still has, as good a figure. That made him depressed. He returned to reading the book. And then she asks, Molly asks, would you still like me if I was a cyclops? Right? And Joe deflects this, this idea. And, or he def deflects this question and just gets to asking about the book again, which he's kind of reading and increasing fascination because it seems to talk about the glimmon, the fog things, and it seems to even begin to predict things that's going to happen to, to, um, to him and the Glimmon in the future. One, one phrase shows that, proves, I guess, especially to Joe, that the Callens and Glimmon are in some kind of antagonistic relationship. It says, Joseph Fernwright learns that Glimmon considers the Callens in their book his antagonist and is said to be plotting to undermine the Callens once and for all. How he will do this, though, he is not known. Here the rumors begin to differ. It's interesting that even in this book that per seems to know everything, well, that even in a, in a book like this, you have you have sources, right? You have uh, different interpretations, and like the, the idea that rumors differ in a book that um, claims to know everything already undermines this idea of what the book is. It it is more like a newspaper in this way that it can only kind of report on the way things look from one moment to one moment. Its predictions are always going to be kind of dubious. Um, but then Molly explains a little bit more about the history between the Kalans and the fog things, these, this ancient race that lived on the planet, and, and the Glimmon, and, and how there is a big conflict between the Kalan, the Kalans who have a predicted future and use that as the basis of power, and, and the Glimmon. Now, uh, some other people come to the door and say, we're going to have a meeting pretty soon not, you know, in, the, in the lobby or whatever, in the conference room of the hotel. And that other people have already been reading the book and looking up things about Scala and the Glimmon, and there's growing concerns about what all that means. So that's chapter seven. Chapter eight is, is a very short chapter. It's only about four pages. And all the people are gathered in this conference room. There are 40 different kinds, 40 different species. And they're basically waiting for Glimmon to manifest himself. And, and Joe's kind of excited to see him manifest in his true form. Molly says that can't be because he weighs 40,000 tons. He would destroy the hotel if he came. So Joe says maybe he'll come as a bird or, an, or a, a phoenix or something. Albatross. No, it's an albatross is what he hopes he'll, he'll come as. One of the creatures is just described as a gastropod. This seems to be the, the, the species as it forms. It's like a reddish jelly um, you know, creature. It had been reading the book, and it found in the book, in his version anyways, statements that seem to suggest that the undertaking will fail and that Glimmon will not be able to, to really lift up the cathedral from 
you know, Lyft helps Scala. So the Callens are already kind of inserting their predictions as kind of a power play against Glimmin in its goal of, of raising Held Scala. It's not ever clear to me why the Callens care if Held Scala is raised or not. It just seems to be a, a broader power conflict between the, the dominant forces on the planet. Those that write the book and Glimmin who wants to challenge fate, right? So one is fate, one is, I guess, the anti-fate, right? Like human initiative, the more Promethean spirit even. Now, one guy, Harper Baldwin, is still talking about forming a union and, and suggesting that they, they kind of create a delegation that can negotiate with Glimmin about, about things. Um, and then um, the Glimmin appears, and he appears in his true form. Quote, it was in all respects the real Glimmin, Glimmin as he actually was and so. And essentially, he's a huge... Um, Entity, here maybe just just read this passage. Like a thousand, like the sound of ten thousand junk, rusty automobiles being stirred up in one wooden spoon. Glimmin heaved himself up and onto the raised stage at the far end of the conference room. His body quivered and shuddered, and from the deep inside him, a moan became audible. The moan grew, rose until it became a shriek. An animal, Joe thought, caught perhaps in a trap, one paw, and he's trying to get loose, but the trap is too complicated, and at the same time, a great spewing forth of brackish seawater, trash fish, aquatic mammals, sea kelp, the room reeked with the roar and shock of the sea, and in the center of it all, the churning lump which was Glimmon. And he f falls through, like, the hotel, he breaks the hotel, essentially. He, he shatters, he breaks the floor, falls down ten floors into the basement of the hotel. So Molly's prediction that he would essentially break the hotel if he appeared in his natural form turned out to be true. And uh, Joe just quips that he should have come as an albatross, not in his true form. So that's it. That's cha chapters um, five through eight of, of Galactic Pot Healer. It's really about this group coming together, getting to Plowman's planet, and the central realization that they have is that they all share this this alienation and the despair in their old life and that Glimmin used that to give them some new meaning. The debate still is are they exploited? Is Glimmin taking advantage of them or is he really kind of a savior coming to protect them? The other major thing we learn is that there's a conflict in between kind of fate which is presented by the book, the Callans that write out the story in advance, you know, basically choosing what's going to happen and Glimmin who's going to fight against fate. Right When all signs point to one solution, Glimmin is going to be the one who says, no, we're going to do something different. And that tension is going to run throughout the rest of the novel. And that's a big reason we feel despair. It seems it's, it's one of those three stigmata again, the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. Despair is one of them. And one of the biggest sources of despair is this inevit inevitability of death, right? Fate in all its forms and in all the places it leads is, is what causes so much of our despair. Glimmin then becomes the, the force that's going to struggle against that. But I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this. So let me know what you think. Give your own thoughts about uh, Galactic Pot Healer below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll be back next time when we'll look at chapters 9 through 12 of, of Galactic Pot Healer. It's about 50 more pages of, of the novel. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll, I'll see you next time. You must search till you find the room.
bird, you will find peace and contentment forever if you're.